I love telling the story of the whole Bible. And we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation tonight. Don't worry, it's not going to last like three hours, I don't think. Um, but I think it really helps sometimes. I love diving deep, staring at one verse, even one word per verse, and just getting lost in it. But I also think it's important sometimes to zoom out and to take like an aerial view. What we're going to do tonight is like helicopter level, flying over Yosemite Valley, so to speak, just to get a sense of awe and like, wow. This is one master meta-narrative, and it will actually help whatever may be reading plan you're on right now, or you're going through the Gospel of the Bible, to like locate yourself and realize that there are threads that run the entire length of Scripture, that the story, like it's one, the Bible is a literary work of genius. I don't know if you know that, but the Bible is a literary work of genius, and it's extremely self-referencing all the time Jesus would make like an offhanded comment, and if you're Old Testament literary, you're familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures, his like one statement is actually supposed to draw your imagination back to an entire passage in the Old Testament. So if you want to really understand the meaning of what Jesus is saying, a lot of times you've got to like flip a whole bunch of pages and go back and say, I need to study what Jesus was talking about. Yeah. I'll spend probably the first half of tonight or maybe the first two-thirds talking about Jesus revealed through the Old Testament and the storyline that runs the whole. Understand that when the apostles, the first followers of Jesus, the twelve disciples, you know, minus Judas, then they replaced him. Uh, when the first followers of Jesus preached the Gospels from the Scriptures, they only had access to the Hebrew Bible. They were convincingly, very convincingly, in, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, preaching Christ, the Messiah, through only what we call the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible. They were showing Jesus. That part that I referenced tonight, the road to Emmaus, where Jesus is walking with two of his disciples after his resurrection, and he's kind of playing with them. I encourage you to read this story. It's found in Luke uh, 24. It's talking about, like, Jesus saying, why do you guys look so downcast? Why are you guys so sad? And they're like, are you the only ones who haven't heard about the events? Like, basically, they start talking about how they're, you know, this guy who left everything to follow has been crucified. They thought that maybe he was the hope of Israel. And then it says that this, this is like the Bible study of all Bible studies. Could you imagine being on this seven-mile trip with Jesus? And it says this, uh, Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses, Moses wrote Genesis. You guys know that. So beginning with the beginning of the beginning, the first book in the Bible, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. <laughs> Jesus took them on a seven-mile journey. I don't know how long that took on foot journey from Genesis to Malachi showing himself through the scriptures. Could you imagine being in that Bible study? No wonder when they got to like the dinner table they said, hey, didn't your heart like burn within you as Jesus was opening up the Bible? This, I'm not going to do this on any level the same as Jesus, but my intent tonight is to show you Jesus, the whole story pointing to Jesus. If you're new to the Bible, I don't assume you know anything. I don't know people's background when you grew up in Sunday school. I do know that stats say only 4% of Gen Z has a biblical worldview. 4%. That means 96% are operating from the wrong set of values and fundamental understanding about the world they live in to answer the most important questions of life. Yeah. The most important questions of life, such as where did I come from? What is the purpose of my life? Where do I get a sense of right and wrong? And where am I ultimately going? Destiny, ultimate destiny. All arrive out of your worldview. And 96% of your generation does not answer those questions from a biblical understanding. Wow. It's scary, but I believe that God can flip the stats. Yeah. Um, so here's just a couple of quick facts about the Bible before I get to the actual books. 
the, the Bible, although I'm holding a book tonight, I've got my journal inside of it, has one book. It's actually 66 books. When you step into the Bible, you should understand you're actually walking into a library. And there's different genres of literature. In the same way, if you were to go over to Atkins Library and walk through, there'd be a poetry section, there, there might be natural history, there might be all these different things. We need to understand that there are different types of genre in the Bible, right? So that's important to understand. There's 66 books, 39 different authors, again, who are telling one story. Over 1,500 years, it's part of the literary genius of the Bible. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but written through men. It's a unified love that took the straight from Bible Project. It's a unified story that points to Jesus. Um, and then there's obviously two halves, the Old and New Testament. The word testament means covenant, right? So the Old Testament is primarily speaking to the Old Covenant. Jesus ushers in the age of the New Covenant. We'll talk about that a little bit more. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, would be called the Tanakh. Contrary to what you're going to find people on campus saying, the Bible, like at the Council of Nicaea, they gathered primarily to discuss you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Seth's our like history major, to discuss and to flesh out how they were going to articulate the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, not to burn books of the Bible that they didn't want in there, right? So Jesus is really one of the main ways that we understand and what was already circulating in first century Judaism, what was considered canon or the Hebrew Bible, right? So when Jesus says, talk, refers to the scriptures, he would talk about you have Moses, and you have the writings, or you have David. David was like a shorthand way of saying the Psalms and Proverbs. Even though David didn't write all those, if you go through Psalms, you see guys like Asaph or the sons of Korah, right? And, they, and he would say the prophets. And these were categories of books that described the Tanakh. And basically, he would reference other things, but he was never calling them scripture. Those things that had like spirit-inspired authority on them were the books that Jesus was referring to. Right? And then these other books, like intertestamental periods, Enoch, all that type of stuff, it's not saying that it's not useful, but it's not on the same level of authority. We need to understand that. I just want to give you guys a framework for some of these types of things. What we have as canon was what was already circulating in the early New Testament churches, and they regarded as authoritative. Man, those letters that came from Paul, the letters that came from Peter, right? And they had other good stuff that they were reading. In the same way, I might read C.S. Lewis and say it's helpful, but it's not Bible, right? right. Yeah. So it's, under, it's important to understand that there was not some like maniacal council that got together like, how can we <laughs> and have like a political takeover? And if they wanted to even do that, what a weird message to circulate. Like, take up your cross and pay taxes to Caesar and be good citizens and like live a humble life and turn the other cheek. That's not really a political revolt. That's the Jesus revolution, right? right. Yeah. And so if they were trying to plot some maniacal takeover, yeah. in the ultimate sense, it will win, but it's not the way of the world, right? So I want you to understand the scriptures can be trusted. God not only gave us the scriptures, but he also preserved them, right? So we can trust that what we have um, is what God wants us to have. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to hit before we jump into this. Um, yeah, but I think we also need to understand God's spoken scriptures through men. This is not like golden plates that arrive down. Right? I think what some people understand, and that, that almost is what Islam believes about the cross. Not in a literal sense, but it's like direct revelation through Allah and the all, right? And there were actually, I won't get into that. I won't start talking about the cross. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that we even have textual criticism for the Bible is evidence, though of its strength and not its weakness. The fact that we can go back and realize right, through the hands of men, God was handing off something that we can actually look at, right? The fact that it has such a history is actually powerful. But let me go ahead and jump in to enough comments about the Bible itself. Uh, 
So here's my arrows, and we're just gonna say eternity. So if you were here the first week, the day before class is actually officially started, and I'll try, what I'm gonna do to the best of my ability is on the top I'll have the scripture reference, and beneath it we'll draw the importance it plays in the In the beginning, anybody know what the next word is? God created. God. Okay, before even God created, we love to jump to creation. Creation is important. But the first revelation of the Bible is not creation, it's God. And I asked this question before, it's a fun thought experiment. I don't care, you know, what your perspective, Big Bang, whatever. Whatever the first moment that you picture inaugurating creation, you know, an vast expanse of light and matter just shooting off in all these different directions. Take yourself one second before that moment, and what do you visualize? Before there's matter, before there's light, before there's sound, before there's anything. The Bible would say there was God, right? And this, this begs the question from eternity, from forever in that direction. God. Without beginning or without end. This is part of what sets up the nature of who God is. He is the right. uncreated, the only self-existent, self-sustained being in the entire universe. And he is a trinity. Read John 1.1 1, 1 in that same language. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. From forever, God is a Father. And from forever, Jesus Christ is the Son. Not two gods, one God, sharing in the same essence. And from forever, the Holy Spirit. It means that they were forever a perfect triunity, a perfect community of love. Perfect love flowing outward, right? From forever, God is a lover. So God in eternity was not alone like, you know, the, the, this eternal just bored. Like he wasn't lonely. He, he was loving perfectly in the perfect community of himself. And out of the overflow, because love is an outflowing quality. God wanted to catch you up in that love experience of eternity, and therefore he decided to create you, right? Enter creation. Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2. There are different theories on, I'm not going to get into it because we just don't have enough time, but let's just establish this. God created everything. And it's designed. I like to ask people when we're out in angels, I like to ask this. Just look around for a second. Think about your body. Have you ever seen a baby or looked under a microscope? I mean, just be really honest with me. Does it appear to be designed or appear to be an accident? And most people who are honest, even if they're atheists, will say, well, it does appear to be designed. I mean, in the Milky Way galaxy alone, 100 to 400 billion stars. And we're one of, like, however many trillion galaxies. We don't know how big the universe are, yeah. is. And every single cell of your body, the human genome, it's written out from end to end. We fill 200, 1,000-page uh, New York City telephone records. And every cell of your body has that much information. Whoa. It's a lot of things. Design. <laughs> <laughs> it's a worldview. And God in the beginning, I'm sorry if this offends you, it says that, man, after he creates the birds, the skies, all, he does all the creation stuff, there's this, and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. He looks at the natural world, it's good. And then he said, let us make humans in our own image, right? Male and female, he created them. I'm sorry, but there are two genders. From creation, we get God's I don't preach my opinions. I just preach what I find in the Bible. I'm not embarrassed about it, right? Because God's creation was good from the very beginning. In fact, he said, it's very good. 
It's very good. Teleological, by design. Right? And so from Genesis 1 2 to Genesis 2, Cord Russell says this. He goes, We had God's intention in the first two chapters of the Bible. I'm not going to tell you what happens until later in the last two chapters of the Bible. We get God's intention fully realized. And everything spanning Genesis 2 to Revelation 21 is redemptive history. Okay? It's God working within the context of broken, fallen humanity, redeeming us. Right? And God created a woman out of man to be his helpmate or to be his uh, Ezra Kaneko, to for marriage, right? One man, one woman, for the purpose of a one flesh union. Within the covenant of marriage. I'm going to talk about this in a future week, but I'm just going to step on a lot of right at the beginning of the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> marriage, one male, one female, for life. Yeah. One flesh yeah. union. Yeah. God's intention. Right. Here, here, I just want to say this real quick again. I'm going to talk more about this in a future week. Even on a, a deep biological, chemical level, a physiological level, whatever, everything that happens in your brain chemistry when you sexually connect with another person is designed for you. Mm-hmm. What happens with your oxytocin, what happens with all these connections, it is designed for you. When people come into the covenant of marriage, they're saying one. They're saying one bank account, one root, one legacy. Uh, what happens to you will deeply affect me until death. Everything, one. And then sex is supposed to be the icing on the cake that says now our physical union will express the union that we have in other, every other area of this covenant. So when you have sex outside of marriage, you're lying with your body. You're saying one, but you don't have oneness in any other area of your life. What's the deepest lies you can tell that affects only another person but yourself? And it starts to cause you to live a fragmented life, but God did not design that. And I'm up here with somebody who had sex outside of marriage, and it did about destroy my life. We've been married for almost six years now. I can tell you that God is a redemptive God. We're going to talk about redemptive history, right? Yeah. I just want to lay when Jesus was asked about questions about marriage, he always went back to the beginning. Right? right? He, he referenced, he said, so I want you to have a, a doctrine of creation, of God's good plan, right? Yeah. Okay. Genesis 3. Things get carried pretty quick in the story. <laughs> Genesis 3. Is the fall. So the, the question is, and I find it amazing how many people are actually reading the entire Bible through the lens of the original translation nowadays. The original temptation came in the form of, did God really say? Do you not know people who now read almost every verse in the Bible asking, did God not really say? Right? The fall came up. Is God, is he essentially good? Is he not withholding something from you? Was the question at the fall. It was questioning in a perfect environment where they knew no lack. They only knew abundance. And they had perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another. And even in that context, the temptation came when you questioned the goodness of God. Will you reach in your own ability? Will you, rather than defining right and wrong through a transcendent higher than you source out of what God says is right and wrong, out of that relationship, learn how to live accordingly, or will you define it subjectively on your own terms? That's the nature of the original temptation. And you think about it, God is love, and he created us in love, and he created us with free will, not to be automatons and robots. The type of universe he created had to be a place where we could choose him and respond to his love in relationship. Right? So, what was the minimal condition? Everyone's like, man, God, 
all-powerful, he's all-loving, he's all-knowing. Why did he even plant the tree? Why did he, like, why is the world the way that it is today? Really, think about it. He did, like, minimal. He just said, okay, I'll give them all good things. I'll even put all of creation in the palm of their hands and say that they have dominion to rule over it. I'll make them in my image. They'll have open access to my presence. But all they have to do is just not touch this one tree. Look around. You can find it in every direction. You can have everything. Now think about your life. Does that tree not feature in almost every decision? Right? It's like a good, good relationship with God. It's like, just don't touch. And it's like, in your life, that tree is always there. That's choices, right? But it was like the minimal thing he had to do to create a loving world. And, and he knew, though, that we were going to take the fall. I'll get back to this later. But as soon as the fall happens, and almost immediately, the promise of redemption rolls off of God's tongue. He puts a curse in Genesis 3.15. I'll just put another mark here. Genesis 3.15. We'll call it the promise. The big, fancy technical word is proto-evangelion. It's like the, the early announcement of the gospel in the third chapter of the Bible. It's, it's epigenetics. It's like, man, at conception, all the information for your life was in seed form. You know that everything about your life, about like the information of your life, not nurture-related, obviously, was already contained in the first cell. And what I'm saying is this is epigenetical in that everything contained in the gospel came in Genesis 3.15. It was already pronounced. God said in the sense, I don't know if I have this word for word, but he's speaking to the serpent who is Satan, and he said, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed, speaking to the woman. He, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And it's the pronouncement that out of the loins of the woman is going to come a deliverer who will himself suffer, but he will crush the head of the enemy. Right? Now, Satan's not omniscient, Satan's not all-knowing. Satan is finite, but you know that that day his antennas went up. And everywhere in the page of the Old Testament, he's looking, where is that deliverer so I can wipe out the generation? Pay attention to that when we get to Exodus. Everywhere Satan is looking for, who is a possible deliverer? Who is this serpent crusher so I can wipe out his generation? Abortion is satanic. I'm going to tell you that. Wiping out the seed of a generation, I'm going to tell you that right now. God can redeem that too. He's a redemptive God. But I want to tell you what was put in the heart of every ruler in the generation where a deliverer was raised up. What was put in the heart of Pharaoh in the generation of Moses? Kill all the babies. What was put in the heart of Herod in the generation of Jesus? Kill all the babies. I want to tell you that is nowhere in God's plan. If you suffered abortion, you know, you sympathize with people's heart situation, I want to tell you there's redemption for all of us. I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. It's not a judgmental sin. But I want to tell you it's not God's will. He's a God of life and not a God of death. Yeah. Right? So at the fall, I forgot to mention. I didn't mean to get so preachy. I just want to take you guys to the bottom. I feel it, JT, in, in a generation that doesn't have a biblical world, I have to say these things, right? Yeah, I have to say these things. At the fall, was the first sense of shame enter the picture? And maybe when you're out evangelizing, you're not using the word sin because it sounds like a religious word. But I would ask somebody, have you ever experienced shame in your life? That's a universal condition. Have you ever experienced guilt in your life? Yeah. You ever felt exposed or the fear of exposure, right? And it's like, have you ever known a person that didn't die 
right? <laughs> it's like these things enter in at the fall. Shame, guilt, and death. Because it said that, man, in the moment that God started calling out to them, and God is the original evangelist, God starts wandering the garden and saying, God knew exactly where Adam was. Whenever God starts asking you questions, mm. it's for the purpose of yeah. self-location. Yeah. Helping you figure out where you are. Adam, why are, Adam, why are you hiding from me? Yeah. Adam, like, what has happened in your life that you're now hiding from me? God is helping you self-locate yourself when you start asking questions. But he, he makes this promise that he's going to send a deliverer who's going to crush the head of the serpent. We're going to meet that deliverer further down the line. But even before we leave Genesis 3, you know, they had their little big leaf garment going on. <laughs> it says that God clothed them with an animal skin. Before we even leave Genesis chapter, God clothed them with an animal skin. What do you have to do to get that skin? God made the first sacrifice. And God used it to cover their shame and their nakedness. And we have a shadow and a type of the one who is also going to give a sacrifice, John 3, 16, wow. to cover our shame and our nakedness. God would provide the covering through the sacrifice of his own son. Wow. Right? Genesis 4. Cain kills Abel. And the blood cries out. So the first murder takes place, right? We're like one chapter past the fall. A brother kills another brother in the field. And it says that the blood starts crying out to God from the earth. It's like this cry for justice, right? We're already God's good creation is being perverted, right? But God ends up protecting this weird thing. God protects Cain. He takes care of him. There's this guy in like Genesis 5, uh, his name Lamech or something, Lakish, who has like a whole city that basically does what Cain does. By the time we get to Genesis 6, I'm not going to go through, don't worry, if you're like, oh my gosh, it's only six chapters. <laughs> the first couple of chapters, like, set up the whole storyline, right? So it's really important to get the first couple of chapters. They're, they are so essential for our understanding of, like, the whole Bible storyline. In Genesis 6, we have the flood. Everybody thinks that the flood is an act of anger. Now, maybe God was angry. This is not the first time we read about God's emotion being described as anger. What we actually find is that God is deeply grieved. He says that he regretted that he even created man, but I don't think it was regret like, oh man, I didn't see this one coming. It, it was like the storm was moved with grief when he looked at the face of the earth and he saw that there was nothing but wickedness in people's hearts. And that basically what had happened here had spread, like multiplied all over the face of the earth. The, the whole blood of the earth was crying out to God for justice. Right? So God finds a man, Noah for many decades is building this boat. And he says later, we find out in the New Testament, that he's preaching righteousness. So I don't know exactly what this looked like, but it's like, he's hammering a board. He's like, hey, guys, repent. God's going to send a flood. It hasn't rained at this point yet. And everybody's just like laughing at him. Mm -hmm. And when it finally comes the time to enter the boat, it's Noah and his seven family members, eight people get in the boat, and he's a message of repentance. God covers the earth in a flood. And uh, I was telling the guys in the Bible study the other day, cool little like Bible reference. Uh, the first time he's after the water starts to recede, 
uh, he sent out a raven, and the raven never comes back. Ravens are scavengers, so picture it's like there's carcasses floating on the surface of the water, that's getting too graphic, there's debris, there's all this like nastiness that's not planned. The raven goes out and he probably like feasts and you know perches on a branch or whatever. He sends a dove out, which is a clean bird, and the dove goes out, comes right back, goes out, comes back, comes back with the olive branch in its mouth. And then finally, after it finds purified land, land where the water has received off it, the dove goes out and never comes back. And that's how no one knows how to part the ship and get off and start over again. What's the next time you find a dove descended on something pure coming out of the water in the scriptures? Jesus' baptism. Jesus comes out of the water. The voice says from heaven, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And the dove descends on Jesus and it says it remains. Wow. Right? Jesus is the pure one. He's, he's like the restart of humanity right? in the truest sense of the word. Wow, wow. Um, Genesis 11. We're going to start. Look, we're already skipping more chapters now. We're really good. <laughs> Genesis 11. Tower of Babel. I think what we need to see here is that God was not threatened by their human ingenuity or architecture. It's not like they got five stores of mud bricks, and he's like, oh my gosh, like, humans are, humans are really getting so smart, I feel threatened, right? It's like, this is never the same God who stretched out the Milky Way and created the human cell, you know? And what was going on, it was a, like an act of humanism. It was uh, their pride, it was their ego. It was a unified language, a unified people working together for evil purposes. <clears throat> Think about, like, at all times right now, like, there's a level of, like, common grace where God is, like, restraining things, and he's, like, his sovereignty is at work within the world. If he were to fully pull his hand back from creation and just give us over, like, you know how many probably, like, nukes would be going off? So, <laughs> like, I'm just being serious. Like, there's a level of restraint, even in the world as broken as it is right now. And I think what was happening at Tower of Babel was, like, hey, there is going to be a day, and we'll read about it in Revelation, where, like, I'm going to pull my hand back, and the real nature of wickedness is going to be seen for what it actually is. But he's like, not yet, right? So he, res like, restrains what's going on there, and he disperses the people at the Tower of Babel. Babel, uh, in Hebrew, would mean confusion, and it's the same word for Babylon. So what we need to see here is Babylon. Follow the thread of Babylon, the tale of two cities, all the way throughout the Bible, right? So Babylon... Is going to appear in the book of Revelation again, too, right? So Genesis 12, just one chapter later. God calls Abraham. Out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, which geographically people would say is about 10 miles outside of the footprint of the current city of Babylon. So picture this, dispersing of nations, languages given up. These are idolatrous people, and God plucks, he reaches into these, this idolatrous culture, and he finds a man, and he tells him, leave this place. Leave Babylon, and head for a place that I'm observing. It's like, just leave. I'm not going to tell you where to head for the mountains. I'm going to show you which one. But, but you need to see Abraham fall out of Babylon, right? So Genesis 12, and he gives him a covenant. Abraham is an old man. He's 75 years old at this point. He has no children. His wife is here, right? We go back to the promise, and it's like, man, there's supposed to be this promise delivery. You start looking at all the patriarchs of Israel, all of them have bare wives. It's like, okay, God, like, let's go to love your story, right? So God gives him this promise. Genesis 15, God descends up the covenant, and he also, like, 
uh, gets more specific with it. So we'll just say covenant. What actually happens, and this was like typical in their days, like two people were going to enter into a covenant and they would split animal carcasses and walk between them. And some scholars will say that basically they were saying, if I don't uphold my end of the covenant, may it be unto me as it is to the animals. Wow. And wow. But something happens. God puts Abraham in a deep sleep and only one person walks through the animal carcasses and it's gone. God's presence passes through basically saying the covenant is on me. Wow. I, will, I will stay faithful to the covenant that I'm God's not done with Israel. I don't want to say that. Um, Genesis 15, God renews the covenant. And this is the first time we see the term, and Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Before circumcision, before the law was given, faith, faith was the way that Abraham was declared righteous. Yeah. And how do you come wow. to have rights? Righteousness means this, right standing before God. How do you, through Jesus, come to have right standing before God? Believe that God is able to do it. It wasn't based on Abraham's merit, it was based on, based on his faith. This will make the book of Romans like, come alive for you guys, right? Um, so Genesis 15, Genesis 25, I hope I have the reference right. Genesis 25 through 35 is Jacob and Esau. Okay, here's what we need to know about this. I'm going to try to keep moving quick. I don't want to lose anybody. Uh, Actually, sorry, Isaac. Isaac, I'm just one of That's really important. So. Isaac and Israel, right? God promises, I'm going to give you a child, and through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, right? I'm going to make you the father of multitudes. Through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Anybody in the room a Gentile, non Jewish by birth, should be super grateful for this, right? If, basically, if you're non Jewish, you should be very grateful for this promise. Before, the promise has taken a while to materialize in Abraham's life. So his wife gets this idea, this terrible idea. She's like, hey, why don't you sleep with my servant? And we'll kind of birth in our own, in our fleshly efforts, we'll birth the promise that God has given us. How many of y'all know that plan can go very well, right? <laughs> so Hagar births Ishmael. And Abraham asks, God, will you like use this as a substitute? Can you use Ishmael? Can the blessing rest on Ishmael? He's like, no. Like, it's the original promise. I'm going to bring life from a dead thing. From, from your boys that are dead, from your wife who's parent, I'm going to bring life from essentially is what he's saying. That's the language we have from the New Testament. So he has Isaac. Fast forward in the story. He's asked to do a ridiculous thing. He's asked to take his son up on a mountain, yeah. who some scholars believe is actually around 30 years old. He's not like an eight-year-old kid the way I used to picture him. Oh, so picture that he's walking up this mountain, carrying firewood. He's got like a knife and he's got a flame or he's got like a torch and he's like, Father, oh, the firewood is here and, and I've got the, the torch. Where's the sacrifice? And all like Jehovah Jireh or whatever the elevation song is, you can be grateful for this passage. This is the first time it says on the mountain, God will provide. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. Right? And he says, God will provide. I said this to the guys, Bible study. God will provide a lamb. L-A-M-B, lamb. Right? Abraham straps Isaac to the, the sacrifice, whatever, you know, the wood, and he goes to draw the knife, and the angel of the Lord says, don't do it, and he looks in the distance, and there caught in the thicket is a ram, R-A-M. And I like to imagine it this way. Was there, like, a communication error in heaven where God's like, send a lamb, and one of the angels is like, God, it's a ram. No, 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 that, this, it's not an accident. And, and we'll talk about that when we get down here, but... Ram. He said, on the mountain, God's going to provide a lamb. There's a ram in the thicket, right? He, 
doesn't have to kill his son. Isaac also marries somebody who's barren. Um, or two women really complicated story. Jacob and <laughs> You get this reversal of order. They're twins, but Jacob comes out. He's wrestling. He's grabbing the heel of Esau. Wow. Jacob steals his birthright for a bowl of soup. I'm probably going to preach this some Sunday. He did not value what was already given to him and traded it for something that was going to last about three hours. Right? Don't we do this in sin all the time? God's like, man, I'm going to give you uh, an eternal kingdom that you'll, you'll be in with me. You're my son. You know, you, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. And then we're like, despise the birthright and reach for the simple, easy thing that like dissipates in two hours. Yeah. Right? Don't be like Jacob. I mean, don't be like Esau. Yeah. Right? And Jacob also gets his blessing through his seed, but all this time he's a deceiver, and mm -hmm. but he eventually wrestles with God. And God says, What's your name? Mm -hmm. He says, My name is Jacob, and he changes his name to Israel, right? Mm -hmm. The start of Israel. Jacob has this son named Joseph. Mm -hmm. Joseph is the youngest of his sons. Joseph gets sold as a slave yeah. to Egypt. But it's part of God's providence, God going before, and even in something that looked messy, actually preparing the way, right? At the end of Joseph's life, he says, you intended for my harm, this is where this wow. verse comes from, but God intended for the saving of many lives, mm -hmm. right? There's this beautiful redemption-type moment. Basically, I think it's Genesis 37 through maybe 50, the story of Joseph, but it sets the stage for the story of Israel. So this is Joseph and the move to Egypt. Deliverance. Deliverance. So Exodus 
God said to for bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, making sure I don't miss anything short. Uh, and he does so with signs, wonders. He strikes the first one specifically. And if you look at it, it's specific. All the plagues are specific, basically confrontations with the gods of Egypt, right? Ross darkens the sun. It's like extremely dark even during the daytime. Uh, but ultimately, he's bringing deliverance. The final act is the Passover, right? They're going to take the blood of a spotless lamb, spread it over their door, and the destiny is cast over their house, and they will not die, right? This is to be celebrated year after year after year. Do you know what Jesus was doing on the last night before he was betrayed when he opened up the Lord's Supper? He was sharing Passover. And when he took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you, and poured that last cup, what he was saying is literally this thing that you've been celebrating for 1,500 years is me. It wasn't like they were just having a good meal. They were celebrating Passover, guys. They're celebrating the Passover and just saying, I am the Passover man. Wow. So Exodus is deliverance. Uh, Exodus 20 is kind of the beginning of the Sinai encounter. And we'll just say the law.
I'm just going to run the whole course of just a spare time uh, <coughs> kids. These would be the writings of Moses, right? It's like all of that, it's like the writings of Moses. Telling the story again of their, their time in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 6, so important. Jesus, when asked what's the most important command, said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is one. The word for one is a cod. It's to compound unity, it's the same word used for one male, one female, become one. Right? So other time we see that word of God, which I believe leaves room for the Trinity. Uh, Therefore you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our morality flows from the nature of who God is. That's why it's so important to understand that what is right and wrong flows from the nature of who God is and out of our life. Right? That Jesus could pair the whole law down to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your Lord as your son. And I would ask this, as you're thinking through the gospel and how this whole thing is pointing to Jesus, I have people all the time, obviously I don't know if you've probably seen me evangelizing all the time, people like, I think all religions basically say the same thing. It's like, if by that you mean that both, most of them boil down to love your neighbor well, maybe, but how many of us have done that one day, even in our life? How many of us have perfectly loved our neighbor, even one day of our life? I can guarantee we have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength one day in our life. And therefore, all of us are broken, all of us are fallen, we need a Savior, right? So, uh, Joshua takes them into the promised land. successively, like after decades, he would raise up another deliverer type figure. We've got Deborah, and Gideon, and Samson, and different people, and they were all imperfect too, but they were basically sent to overthrow God's enemies as an act of mercy, because the people in their wickedness, they would experience the discipline of God, and they would start crying out, God have mercy, God have mercy, raise up a deliverer, that deliverer would die off, and they would fall right back into the same stuff they were doing. But here's the summary. If you want to know why Judges is the darkest book in the Bible, at the end it says, and the people did whatever they thought was right People did whatever they saw. And it's like the summary of the whole book. Why is this book so dark? Why does nobody want to read this? Because everybody did what they thought was right in their eyes. Has human nature changed that much? No. We're just going to say goodbye. Everyone did what they saw in their own eyes. Judges um, into 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is the period of the kings. This is where it was never God's intention that Israel would have a king. He wanted to directly be their king. That unlike the nations around them, he wanted them to relate directly to him. That they would know God as their own king. Think about this. The people are looking at the nations around them, though, and they're saying, we want to be like the nations around us, which is exactly opposite of their calling. It's like, no, I chose you to not be like the nations around you. I'm going to be your king. You're going to like relate to all the nations through me. But God conceded. And sometimes you can understand there's a difference between God's permissible will and God's best will. Right? So God first gives them Saul. And Saul is basically a wicked king. You know, he's filled with rage. He's insecure. He 
disobeys God, uh, he indulges in witchcraft, all this different stuff. And then we get David, and David is a man after God's own heart. David is not a perfect character, but what's really significant is in 2 Samuel 7, we get another layer of the promise that was given way back here. God makes a promise that through your lineage, I will raise up the king who will have an everlasting dynasty. He'll always have an heir to sit upon the throne. And David's like, whoa, like, what is this promise? How could I possibly receive this? But, and God makes a covenant with him. God doesn't change his mind, so God makes the covenant. What we start to realize is back here when God in Genesis 3, 15 says, I'm going to raise up a deliverer. It's a narrow Remember, it's like, okay, it's kind of foggy here. Like, we know that someone's going to be raised up and crush the head of the serpent. At Genesis 15, it's like, oh, it's all the nations through Abraham. It's going to come through Abraham. It's going to come through Isaac. It's not going to come through Ishmael. It's not going to come through this line over here that was born of the flesh. It's going to come through the child that was born through faith. Oh, it's going to come through Jacob, right? This role reversal. It's going to come through Israel. Now we know it's going to come through the tribe of Judah, specifically through David, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the promise of the Messiah. First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles describe the same period of history. It's a very long expanse and it's basically the history of the kings. And it sounds like this. So-and-so was a good king and did what was right eyes the Lord like his father David before him. So-and-so was a really bad king and he did not do like what his father David had done and led the nation of Israel into idolatry. And so-and-so after him was even worse and he led them even further into idolatry, right? And so what we need to see is that there's this promise of a king and a deliverer who's going to come and yet all of these guys are extremely broken. And if you're reading through the stories, you're like, where? Right? And every one of them leaves you with kind of this cliffhanger deliver, right? And all the prophets, like the major prophets, so we'll say, uh, in order, it would be Jeremiah, or sorry, Isaiah. <clears throat> the major prophets are Jeremiah's because after uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel's a contemporary with Jeremiah, and Daniel's also kind of contemporary with these guys. So they're all writing around the same period of time, but they're in different positions. What we need to understand is that these guys are prophesying during this period of time. That, that's just helpful when you're reading. And sometimes, like, just to be like, oh, like, this is not like the later story. He's actually prophesying to this generation that's really like sideways and far from God. And here's what the prophets, if you really want to know what the message of the prophets, you know they're complicated, crazy books, but like here's basically what they're saying. Here's God's covenant, and here's what he called you to do. Here's how you're not living up to it. And here, if you don't repent and change, what's going to happen as a result? Their covenant enforcers is their person. More than they're even predictors, they're covenant enforcers. They're holding Israel accountable to what God made a covenant back at Mount Sinai. Is that here's the blessings, here's the curses. If you keep the covenant, which they almost never did perfectly, there will be blessing for the land. If you Able to keep the covenant, there's going to be exile. I'm going to have to drive you from the land because why? My presence is in the land, and I'm not going to have a mixture of wickedness and have it the place where my presence is. Right? So it's like a father. I'm going to send you out to be disciplined. I'll always bring you back. Right? When in the place of discipline, you begin to long for this place and you begin to cry out for mercy, I will be compassionate. God, bring you back. 
That's basically the message of the prophets, but they're also doing something else really important. They're always pointing forward towards Jesus. They're always pointing forward towards the day of redemption. And what we're getting through the prophets is like a hyper-specific kind of silhouette profile of who the Messiah, who the Savior, who this King is going to be like, right? And so we get descriptions sometimes that talk about him being, uh, all these things being fulfilled through one who comes through the line of David. Other times it's talking about Yahweh doing it. And it's like, you know, which one is God going to do and which one is the son of David? When we realize when Christ comes, it's the same person. Son of God, son of David is going to fulfill these things, right? Um, Ezekiel, Daniel, we get promises like Isaiah 53, which literally reads like a newspaper headline the day after the crucifixion, written 700 years before Jesus ever suffered at the cross, right? We get those types of profiles of the suffering servant. In Daniel, this is so significant. Daniel's a kind of spooky, apocalyptic book, parts of it. We like lines then, but after that, he starts prophesying and things get hard to understand. Jesus' favorite way, Jesus loved the book of Daniel, this is why I'm telling you this. Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself was not Messiah, was not Christ, was not even Son of God. It was the Son of Man. When he said that, it was a title. He was not saying Son of Adam. He was not saying a human being. What he was actually saying was a divine title from Daniel chapter 7. And, and every time, the way I can know that with confidence is because every time he says it, the religious elite are ready to pick up rocks, stone him, because they think he's blasphemy. He's wow. making himself equal with God. Daniel chapter 7 basically describes the rise and the fall of beast kings. It's like uh, Persia, Babylon, Egypt, like all these ancient kingdoms that basically had demonic figureheads. They were earthly rulers, but basically ruled like Satan. They, they ruled through oppression, through greed, through manipulation, crushing the poor through slavery, right? Nothing like God's reign. And it's like for a time, they have their power in history, but they'll be crushed. They have their power in history, but they'll be crushed. Then there's this boastful little horn. This is the Antichrist, the future day, who comes before God, speaking boastful words before the Ancient of Days. But God basically is like, you know what I mean? It's like his, his reign is short, and that's what we need to understand. He's like the worst of all the beast kingdoms that have ever reigned. And so we need to understand, like that's back in Daniel 7. And Jesus comes, like one riding the, the clouds of glory, which is how Yahweh rides in the clouds of glory. He approaches the Ancient of Days. And I would encourage you sometimes, I love the majesty of God passages where it's just like, yeah. makes you want to fall on your face. Like, God is sitting on a throne of fire with a river of fire proceeding from his throne, surrounded by like 100 million angels, right? Mm -hmm. And it's called the Ancient of Days, with hair, white like wool, white robe. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an, it's an intense passage, yeah. and you have to picture Jesus riding the clouds of glory yeah. and walking up to this figure. Like, nobody just walks up to the Ancient of Days, is what you need to understand. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who comes into his presence. And what's given to the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 is an everlasting dynasty, an eternal kingdom that will not end, and he's given worship by the wow. angels. So when Jesus, that will give you new lens. When you read yeah. the New Testament and Jesus says, Son of Man, yeah. you need to think Daniel 7 going on in the background, right? Yeah. And now you need to understand why the religious elite are getting furious. Jesus before Pilate in the Sanhedrin says very little, but he says the next time you see, he goes, are you a king? He says, you have said to because the next time you see me, I'll be riding in clouds of glory with my father's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The Bible is powerful, right? And, and some of these expressions, Jesus is powerful. All that to say, uh, after this period, they go into exile, right? For a long period, Jeremiah prophesied seven years. Daniel's living at the end of that period. He sees a day. People haven't repented. They're not ready. Turns his face. You know the story. Ezra and Nehemiah.
Zechariah. We'll just call these guys the return. These are guys who basically were in exile and answered the call to go back. Ezra is a scribe, Zechariah is a prophet who encouraged the people in the word, and Nehemiah rebuilds the wall, and Zerubbabel is there to rebuild the temple. And this is really important because they're coming back into the land, but it's like a lesser version of what it once was, right? And after these guys, we've got minor prophets. Uh, we've got to understand these guys come after all of this. This is the second temple kind of period that Jesus eventually would have been born into. We're going to go minor prophets. So I'm not going to write all these out, but minor prophets would be like the Haggai's, the uh, Jonah, these different people. They're not lesser than prophets. They're just not as like major books, right? They didn't span the same period of history. We'll say up until Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and then it goes silent for 400 years, right? And Malachi promises that he's going to send one like Elijah, who's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the children to the fathers, or he's going to spite the land with a curse. And we understand that on the other side of this is John the Baptist shows up on the scene. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. He's born six months before Jesus. And I love John the Baptist's confession. I basically say if all of this was an arrow pointing to Jesus, then you find John the Baptist at the beginning of almost every gospel saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. Remember back here on the mountain with Abraham and Isaac, and there was a ram dispatched? Guys, the Lamb shows up. Like, how 1,400 years later, whatever it was. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the sacrifice that would be provided. And John hands off the baton. In Hebrews 1, it says, In the former days, God has spoken us to, uh, through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. Do not fail to listen. It's like shattered type, shattered type. One coming, one coming, one coming, one coming, one coming. Broken humanity. I love how John's gospel starts. It doesn't just start with the lineage of Jesus, which is important to trace his ancestry back to Abraham, back to David. But it says in the beginning of the of the word. It's basically saying, from forever, Jesus shows up on the scene. He enters into the human baby by his own will and by the Father's design. From eternity, right? If Jesus, I need you to understand this. If Jesus shows up on the scene just as a human, and he's not the divine son of God, then he is just another good teacher who can provide another good moral path to hopefully get you to God, but he cannot save you from your sins. Wow, then the New Testament would provide no gospel, no good news. Yeah. Love your neighbor if you haven't done that perfectly one day. Yeah. You're dead in your sins and unjustified before God. Wow. When Jesus shows up on the scene in the land of God, he comes to get you. So we're just going to say gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the biographical story of Jesus, which trace his ancestry, his eternality, his Jewish heritage, which is important to the promises coming through Abraham, coming through David, his virgin birth, holy God, holy man, his perfect, sinless life, his teaching, his proclamation of the gospel, up into his crucifixion, which is the only way by which man may be saved. I say it this way, if there's any other way, any other mountain you could get up, any other world religion that led to the same place, and God as a father is extremely cruel for not answering Jesus, not one, but three petitions. And this is that there's any other way wow. that God would allow that complicated suffering to pass, but he did not. He just went all the way through to the cross. Yeah. And he wore your sins there. And that is why with a straight
straight face. You can look at a Hindu, you can look at a Muslim, yeah. an atheist, an agnostic, yeah. a New Age spiritualist, and say there's only one name given under heaven. Right, and maybe say this is Jesus Christ. Like there is no other name but Jesus Christ on which man may be saved. That will make you sound exclusive, whatever else. That is the most loving thing you can say to a person. Because apart from that name, they will perish eternally. That's the gospel. But God so loved the world that he sent his one only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's why it's good news. And that's why we don't muddy that message with a bunch of other stuff, right? And all of this, like when you preach the law and you talk about sin, or I call abortion satanic, whatever it sounds so intense, it's fine to talk about the good stuff. If people don't realize that yes. they're sinners in need of right. saving, then the gospel has no place to take wow, a fruit in their life. Saved from what? Right? Like, mm. saved from what? If you don't believe that there's sin and that you're a sinner, what are you saved out of? Wow. What are you saved into, right? Yeah. Wow. But on the third day, Jesus was bodily resurrected from the dead. He did not come back a spirit or a ghost. He came yeah. back in a physical, resurrected yeah. body. And that's so important because one day you will not be a disembodied spirit floating around in some type of ethereal Disneyland. But at the last trumpet, the sound, Jesus Christ is going to split the sky and the dead in Christ will rise. And you're going to have a physical, eternal, glorified, resurrected body free of sickness and free of the impetus to sin. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He ate fish in his resurrected body. He let people touch his nail scarred hands. Right? And through all eternity, he bears memorial to the crucifixion, even in the set of glory. Right. Through all eternity, he's the lamb who was slain. Right? Picture of Jesus in his resurrected glory still having nail scars. Right. I'm getting close to wrapping up. I'm sorry, this took a long time, but. Acts. This is the, whole, the, the inauguration of the church. Jesus resurrected. He doesn't stay on the earth. He ascends after 40 days of giving convincing proofs that he has in fact resurrected. Literally, picture this. I would love to picture this moment. Jesus actually in plain sight went up, disappeared in the clouds. The angel showed up in the scene. The guys were craning their neck and saying, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up into the clouds? In the same way he went up, he was in um, what I want you to understand is that from this moment forward, these are the bookends of the hour of history that you're living in. You think you live disconnected from all of this? You live in a period of time between here and Jesus Christ's return. One of the most significant generations in human history. And I don't want to call a generation to wake up to that. Bible times are not long gone past. The book is written, but the story is still being told. Right? Acts is Jesus' ascension. Outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the gospel goes to the Gentiles. From Acts 2, after Jesus ascends 10 days, day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit is poured out, which is significant. It's on all flesh. And the prophesying 3,000 adds their number that day. And I want to ask you a question 
was did that mark the end of that period of history or the beginning of it, right? So mm -hmm. we should expect all throughout history until Jesus returns successive outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And that's what's been called seasons of revival. All of us have a measure of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. There are times that he opens up the heavens and he pours out the Spirit and multitudes start getting saved, right? Mm -hmm. That's what happened in the book of Acts. And like everywhere, people are getting saved like crazy. Cities are being turned upside down. Millions of dollars worth of witchcraft, paraphernalia, whatever is being burned in the center of cities. I mean, revival is shaking cities yeah. and flipping the world upside down. Right. As people are going around, being imprisoned, having their heads cut off, whatever else, proclaiming Jesus Christ as King Caesar. <coughs> right? And they're living a different type of lifestyle. This is supposed to be normal for Christianity, right? Wow. This, we live a subnormal existence. This should reset the clock for us and make us realize it's normal for Christianity. Book of Acts. It's not supposed to die with the apostles. It's supposed to go on. Anyways, uh, Acts. Then we have the epistles. These are letters to early New Testament churches. Peter, John, Paul wrote the majority of them. Basically, are then trying to figure out in the mess of humanity how to be a new covenant people and live under the reality that Jesus is king, but we're also living in a tension that he's not yet back on earth and hasn't fully set up his kingdom. How do we live in a world that's still full of evil, but know that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth? And that's the epistle that's trying to work out how do we be a gospel people, not only in confession, but in lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Right? How do we as a community live into the reality that Jesus is king, that we're born again, that we have a new nature? How do we let the world around us actually see that as a people and not just have doctrinal beliefs that we can list on a sheet of paper that don't do anything to us? Right, right. That's what the epistles are basically trying to answer that question. Yeah. And you feel the yearning of Paul as he's going through these things with much tear. I feel like I'm in the labor pains of childbirth trying to see Christ fully formed inside of you. Mm -hmm. Right? Revelation freaks everybody out. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Revelation 1, if you want to have a better understanding of the book of Revelation, it's still probably going to be somewhat hard to figure out. Maybe second to the book of Hebrews or equal has more Old Testament references than almost any book in the New Testament. It is constantly drawing off of imagery and allusions to things that happened in the Old Testament. So to understand the book of Revelation, get Old Testament literature. Study books like Daniel. Study these different things, right? But it's, it's the revelation, not of spooky predictions, but primarily of Jesus Christ. Yeah, right. The word revelation, apocalypto in Greek, literally means unveiling. And the first words of revelation are the unveiling of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Think about that for a second. It's like, okay, you Apostle John, you've been suffering for 60 years. You're exiled as a nine-year-old on the island of Patmos. I'm sure you'd love to see your buddy Jesus again. And it's like the veil is torn back, and he gets to see where Jesus is seated in the highest heaven and how he's guiding human history to his ultimate that's the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus' perfect leadership, guiding human history to its appointed climax, where he will completely rid the world of evil, overthrow Satan's demonic kingdoms, and set up his perfect rule and leadership on planet Earth, not in the sky. On planet Earth. Earth is good. And God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth that Jesus is going to sit over, physically, literally, embodied on this earth, and we will rule and reign with him. And resurrected bodies. Mm. Yeah. This is what we talk about. This is the gospel, right? That that's supposed to put something in you. That's why people like in China right now who are risking going to a single house church meeting, knowing they never see their family again, is because they have a better hope. Yeah. They didn't just punch their tickets to Disneyland in the sky. They believe that one day Jesus is going to overthrow that demonic communist government. 
And he's going to set up his perfect kingdom and rule and reign from Mount Zion. And so they have their eyes set on a better day, right? And if this doesn't live inside of us, we're not going to have the tenacity to go through the pressures of this life. Because we'll say, how much can I get away with following Jesus? Rather than what would it look like for me to lay my life down for the ultimate story of theology, right? So in the book of Revelation, though, it's it's not all allegorical. It's a real letter to real churches in the early first century. I don't want to, I could go for a long time with Revelation, but... Man, like Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, these different churches, the seven churches in the province of Asia were real first century churches, not allegorical churches, not meant just to represent something. And it actually represents the trade route that the letter would have gone to. It would have made the most sense as they're delivering these letters to the different churches. What that means is that the book of Revelation, while I believe it had a huge implication because the day of the Lord has not come, Jesus has not returned, has significance for every generation of human history. So whether you live in uh, A.D., 700, or you live in the medieval ages, there's something that you can draw from the Revelation. Here's the message. I said this. Don't live in Babylon. Have your citizenship in the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem, the language used there, harkening all the way back to here, is covenant marriage relationship. That there are people who have married Jesus. And I think we're in the engagement period right now. But one day, they're going to stand before Jesus as a corporate bride and together deliver their wedding vows. But in this world, their faithfulness and their fidelity to Jesus will be tested while they await for their bridegroom to come in this life. How many of you know, like I'm, I'm married, like I said, I've been married over six years. How many of you know that the same level of fidelity was expected during the engagement? Like I didn't say, well, we haven't actually, you know, like, stood before each other. I know you're wearing the engagement ring, but this is kind of weird. You're like, no. Engagement says, I've already made up my mind, even though we haven't stood in front of each other. At the cross, Jesus Christ slid their engagement ring on the finger of his bride. And there's a day coming in human history where he will consummate it. So the message of Revelation is essentially in persecution or in luxury, whether you're in the Western world or whether you're in China or North Korea right now, stay faithful to Jesus. And here's the true message. Sometimes it's harder to be faithful when you're living in a prosperous place where the opportunity to compromise is everywhere than it is in a place where it's so obvious what the the state's actually It's it's a lot easier sometimes to just sell it all for a bowl of soup. But here's the thing. What God restrained here, the book of Revelation is God almost pulling his hand back. He says, for a period of about seven years, really intensified for three and a half years. Untold, unprecedented levels of human wickedness and evil, such as the world has never seen. It's called the Great Tribulation, that really intensified the last three and a half years. This is also harkens back to the book of Daniel. So I need to study this. And God will allow the Antichrist to essentially be the most demonic-filled leader. Basically, like, if Christ is God incarnate, like, the Antichrist, you can almost picture being, like, Satan incarnate, right? And it's like, this man is going to rule through perversion, through lies, through what Satan does, right? And he's going to lead a lot of people astray, but God's going to let it happen. And that's hard for us to understand. But to allow us to see the true nature of wickedness from where it actually is. But at the same time, there's going to be unprecedented revival happening right next to you. And the light's going to shine in the darkness so bright. But when Jesus shows up in the clouds of glory, it says that with the breath of his nostril, yes. like he's going to destroy the Antichrist. Wow. 
and, and here's the message. You don't have to so much be worried about, like, this is where people get spooky microchips or whatever. Yeah. If you're already in bed with Babylon, you don't really have to worry about what form <coughs> deception is going to take. Mm. Right? Oh Does that make sense? Like, I know this is so intense, but, like, the call is be faithful now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the call is don't live under deception now. Yeah. The call is see Jesus now. The call is live for Jesus now. Yes. Yeah. Because if we can't do it when the stakes are low, when the stakes get really wow. high, are we going to do it? Yeah. Yes. Jesus will usher in Revelation 18, 19. I'm not sure if you're right. 18, 19. 18 is the overthrow of Babylon. 19 is the, I think, the descent of the New Jerusalem. Or 19 is Jesus. Uh, I'm getting mixed up. 19. Uh, Jesus based battle for him again. Revelation 20 is the inauguration of the millennial reign. Jesus for a thousand years is going to reign physically, literally on the earth. And then there's the Satan who's been bound for those years is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. This is also Revelation for some of you. You know that it's not biblical. Satan's not in hell right now. Exactly. Do you know it doesn't happen until the very end of the story? Satan is roaming around like a lion, a toothless lion, mm-hmm. trying to devour who he can. Mm-hmm. It's the very like last two chapters that Satan gets thrown into hell. Wow. Right. I know that's right, freak off Satan, but it's like at the end of the story. But then we enter into this period where it says that he will restore a new heaven and a new earth. The place where God lives and the place where man lives are going to perfectly coincide. It says that the city will have no need of sun or moon because the face of God will be the light of the city. Every like fiber, every like grain of sand is going to be iridescent with the glory of God. God's intention is going to be fully realized at the end of the story. He'll wipe every tear, he'll heal every body, and those who are in Christ will share eternity with God, his original intention. And all the language of the Garden of Eden, like the Tree of Life, which, like, it's all here, but it's taken to, like, even a higher level. That thread has run the whole of the storyline. Even the, the idea of, like, back here, he subdue the earth, it's a call to, like, mine it for its resources. I've heard one lady say, she's like, I play violin. That's literally, like, part of what God commanded us to do. She's like, what is a violin made of? Wood and hair, like the strings. Part of, like, art, creativity, ingenuity, mechanical engineering. That was all part of the original mandate given to humanity. So mine the earth of its resources and take dominion. Wow. But in this city, that will be God's own making that he's preparing for the faithful, for those who are in Christ. The streets are paved with gold. The entrance to the city is a single pearl. Like, guys, this is, like, ridiculous. Right. And it's a city that God is preparing for his people to perfectly live with him forever. In the center of that whole story, the only way is Jesus Christ. Yeah. And apart from him, there's no other way. Wow. 